0: Hello, I'm Ashley Mueller, and welcome to this week's episode of the Geneva Center for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues advancing peace, security, and international cooperation. India holds the second largest population in the world, and with that come many domestic and global challenges and opportunities. We discuss India's foreign and security policy with Dr. Vahaguru Paul Sidhu, clinical associate professor at the Center for Global Affairs of New York University and associate fellow with the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. And as global debates around the future of Africa continue to transpire, we spoke to Dr. Didier Plickard, professor at the Global Studies Institute at the University of Geneva, about the quote-unquote new scramble for Africa. Dr. Vahaguru Paul Sidhu, an expert on India's foreign and domestic security policy, shares his insights with us. Thank you for joining us. Firstly, as the world continues to hear news about the coronavirus pandemic, what is the situation now in India?
1: There are three aspects to that which we need to keep in mind in the Indian uh, context. Uh, The first is, of course, the health dimension. While uh, the cases are rising, there's not as much ability to test. And certainly the wherewithal, the medical setup, is certainly not in a position to cope with the large numbers that we've seen even in China or even in in Europe and the United States. It's going to affect India's economy. India's economic growth is going to drop dramatically. Uh, While some have argued that India may still retain a 1.2% positive growth, the government has offered an economic package. But many experts have argued it's too little and does not go uh, as deep as necessarily uh, required. India probably has one of the world's largest uh, unskilled labor force. Uh, They're the ultimate gig economy in many ways. They live uh, literally from assignment to assignment. And when the lockdown was uh, imposed quite draconianly with just about a few hours of notice, Many of these workers literally within hours became uh, unemployed and many of them come from the rural areas Um, and many of them the instinct was to go back home and for the longest time the government did not allow them to do that. Uh, There was all kinds of confusion. They finally got uh, buses and some trains organized by which time it was already quite late for many of the workers they started walking back many walked hundreds of miles, uh, and some even died along the way. So that was a very unfortunate uh, dimension of it. But and by one estimate, there's something like 14 million uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of these kind of uh, local migrants who have not been catered for uh, by the government. Uh, to be fair to the government, yes, there was concern that, you know, the virus might spread along with them. But Keeping them without jobs uh, in the cities, away from where they are and their hometowns, was also not tenable. The third challenge that COVID nineteen is posing now is uh, the government is coming up with a um, an app to trace uh, COVID uh, infections, etc. Which in theory is fine, uh, but there are two problems with that in the Indian context. One, that it's been made compulsory. So it's being enforced. Uh, And second, it's not clear that the privacy concerns have been secured. So uh, that's the downside of how India is dealing with the COVID-19. On the positive side, I think India's pharmaceutical industry is really very well geared for uh, taking the uptake on um, a a vaccine, if it is ever developed, uh, or any other kind of uh, retroviral um, treatments as well. India today is one of the largest producers of HIV AIDS uh, medicines in the world, very cheaply. So it has that ability. But it's in the interim that I think is a big concern of how India will tackle that.
0: What other security challenges face India today?
1: It has become very clear that uh, the India-China confrontation is going to be the primary concern, security concern. And this has to be broken down into uh, different categories. Uh, One is the military category, the traditional hard security category. But the second is the non-military category. It's both uh, at the diplomatic level, but also at the economic level. Uh, And uh, we've now seen uh, an escalation along the line of actual control, uh, the LSE, which is the uh, the, the kind of de facto border between India and China, because a border actually does not exist. So this is where the fighting stopped between the two sides in 1962. And uh, the uh, and now in the in the region of Aksai Chin, where there was a common understanding between the two sides as to where the line of actual control was, uh, China has moved troops across that line of actual control. India has tried to push that back, uh, which means that this border, which until now was kind of sort of a cold border in the sense that it was tense, but there, there was uh, not an expectation that there would be a flare-up may now actually become a hot border. And this area of Aksai Chin is also very close to the Siachen uh, uh, area, where India and Pakistan have a dispute. So it's almost at the trijunction of India, Pakistan, and China. And given the China-Pakistan proximity, which goes back to 1963, and how India deals with that is, is simply not, not quite clear. Uh, But what is clear is that uh, China is going to take advantage of all these disparities along the ground and push. Um, It's not something new. Other countries have done that. In fact, India, one could argue, did that in 1984 when it took over uh, the Siachen Glacier. And so in some ways, China is doing a a Siachen on India in some ways. But the challenge for India is uh, there are very few options. Uh, given that both countries are nuclear armed, uh, any major escalation beyond the point could lead to concerns about nuclear um, confrontation. But I think India will have no choice but to try and uh, cross the line of actual control in other areas. Uh, so at least they could then try to negotiate with China. Or, as some have suggested, maybe try to move into an entirely different area, like the South China Sea, and try and put pressure on China from there so as to make China uh, recognize that this is a red line that it has crossed, and to reach some kind of a via media. The last similar confrontation was in 2017 in doklam uh, which is on the trijunction of bhutan india and china and so you're seeing in some ways an acceleration of these kinds of confrontations along uh, the border and that's problematic number 2 you know at the diplomatic level uh, you can see again china um, alone and very often in partnership with pakistan and some other countries is also very clearly trying to contain India's growth, uh, or uh, shall we say rise of responsibility in the global governance space. So uh, China was one of the key actors which moved uh, forward what is known as the um, Isulwani consensus uh, on Africa for reform of the Security Council. And essentially what that has meant is that there is not going to be a reform of the Security Council. Uh, China has also been uh, not overtly, but covertly blocking the negotiations in the General Assembly on Security Council uh, reforms. Uh, Similarly, last year after India, um, you know, took some decisions on uh, Kashmir, uh, particularly the revocation of Article 370, China referred that to uh, the Security Council at the behest of Pakistan. Uh, This is the first time that uh, in actually since 1965, that this issue has been brought to the Security Council. So again, you can see that China is going to try very much to block India's space in the global governance uh, area. The third area where China is also starting to contain, if you like, India, or, or challenge India, uh, is through its Belt Road Initiative. Uh, the Belt Road Initiative is both uh, problematic at the strategic level because it's coming through disputed territory, for example, in Kashmir. Uh, this is an area which was ceded by Pakistan to China but claimed by India, uh, but also uh, by you know coming around India's neighbors and building up capacities and capabilities there, which also has the potential for uh, providing military segue for in uh, for China's military to support the Belt Road Initiative. Apart from the fact that uh, many of these in- initiatives are not necessarily economically sustainable, and that may pose a major challenge uh, for, for India as well. So for India, the dilemma is really, how do you deal with China? Uh, And uh, all of that being said, there are also some areas where India needs to work with China. Uh, It has no choice uh, because, you know, uh, particularly in the uh, BRICS grouping, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa grouping. But at the same time, India cannot look to engage or partner with other countries to counter China because that may put India in the position of becoming beholden to other countries as well. So it's a very delicate balancing act that India has to do uh, with, unfortunately, not very many options. And unless its economy picks up more significantly, more dramatically, unless its capabilities build up, uh, India will not necessarily have all the options that it requires.
0: What are India's foreign and security policy
1: objectives? One of the best articulations uh, of India's uh, foreign policy priorities actually came from uh, the previous Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, in November 2013. He basically outlined five priorities for uh, the Indian uh, foreign policy. The first was that, uh, you know, India's foreign policy had to create a conducive world order for India's development priorities uh, to enable India to grow. Second, that India's development prospects now and for the future were absolutely linked to the world economy in every way. So which basically means that India is heavily dependent on globalization continuing. The third is that uh, India cannot... Work this, uh, you know, the foreign and security policy by itself. It has to work uh, with other major powers. In fact, all of the major powers. India does not have a choice of being in either one camp or the other camp. The fourth uh, that he outlined was that if India wants to play a greater role at the global level, it will have to build up more regional cooperation and connectivity as well. And then last but not the least, uh, there was also a sense that India uh, would also import its values of a plural, secular, multicultural, multi-ethnic, liberal democracy as an inspiration to the others. We are, of course, in 2020, and we are under a new government. All of those still remain a priority.
0: What opportunities are there ahead for India?
1: I think in in terms of the next steps, India will have to do uh, three things. First of all, it really needs to uh, resolve the COVID-19 challenge. Uh, And as I mentioned, the COVID-19 challenge is not just the health challenge, uh, but it's also the economic challenge. Uh, as well as the challenge, social challenge, particularly of the displacement of millions of, uh, you know, uh, workers. Um, so how India manages all three of those is going to really determine um, what its post-COVID-19 uh, future will look like. Related to that, I think the, in the economic sphere, India might actually have an opportunity To use COVID-19 to push forward for major economic reforms. We have not seen this government being particularly strong on economic reforms or bold. And uh, that's unfortunate. The dilemma is, I think the government is looking more like India first or make in India, which is an antithesis to the globalization, which has really driven India's Uh, approach. Um, So I think that poses a major problem for for, for India as well. Second, uh, undoubtedly, India is going to have to figure out how to deal with China. Uh, And here, I think it's going to have to work at multi levels. Uh, One of them is obviously uh, building up its military and security capability, right from awareness to the possibilities of response and perhaps graduated response. Second is also build up Partners, political partners, who can put pressure on China at the right time or in, in, in some ways counter China's uh, efforts uh, at blocking India in various international forums. Interestingly, France is now starting to come forward as a very close partner of India, uh, more than in, in addition to the United States. Uh, but I think that there is much more of a proximity between India and France at the moment. Uh, Australia may well come in as well into that into that mix Uh, again this is to put forward the political uh, dimension of it and the third really that India uh, will need to do uh, and and you know the challenge that it's going to face is the economic one if it cannot get its economy right everything else uh, is, is not going to be viable and possible at all And for that, we really need a government which is much, much more uh, engaged economically rather than uh, in the divisive sort of political, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll just repeat that again, Uh, the the divisive political initiatives that it has taken, uh, which uh, have been rather uh, populist uh, and also detracting from the main mission of, uh, of India.
0: Is there anything misunderstood about India's approach to international relations?
1: India actually now recognizes that the world we are in today, that it is a multi-axial order, think of it like a, a chess, but at three dimensions. Unfortunately, one might argue that uh, the dominant discourse in the world tends to be binary. It tends to be you're either in our camp or you're not. You're with us or you're against us. But the world is much, much more complex today. India needs to, uh, needs to look at that. It cannot afford uh, to be in any one camp. It is not in India's interest to do that because India has its own priorities and objectives.
2: Women are underrepresented at the top of organisations across sectors. Seeing more women leaders succeed is not just a question of credibility and legitimacy for organisations, it is a fundamental necessity to enable us to harness our collective intelligence and diverse talents to address increasingly complex global challenges. I am Fleur Hayworth and I am the Course Director for Inspiring Women Leaders. At the Geneva Centre for Security Policy, we understand the systemic challenges that women face. We are working to develop more responsive policies and collective leadership practices. In addition, we offer tailored support for women. The Inspiring Women Leaders course equips women with the mindsets, tool sets, and skill sets to influence and collaboratively lead others. It connects women to like-minded peers and mentors to share experiences boost confidence and resilience. Coaches provide individual feedback to develop concrete strategies for career growth. Join our community of pioneers and discover your vision for yourself and your path to achieve it.
0: Earlier, we spoke to Dr. Didier Placard, professor at the Global Studies Institute at the University of Geneva. Dr. Placard, thank you for joining us. You talk about a quote-unquote new scramble in Africa what does that mean and how is this different from the colonial era?
3: Over the past 10 to 15 years, there's a, a, a big diversification of uh, in terms of the number of, of, of possible uh, investors in Africa and also the kind of, of investors. Until the, the late 1990s, Africa was usually depicted as a continent that was so-called hopeless. The situation changed quite dramatically in the course of the 2000s with uh, the fact that uh, uh, many African countries became or had very uh, uh, important growth rates. GDP growth rates were among the fastest in many uh, African countries. So you have a number of of new countries, uh, China in the first place, other BRICS countries, Brazil was very important, also a very important investor, but also uh, Turkey uh, Morocco. Morocco is a hugely important investor in, in large parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, or has been for the past uh, 20 years. So the new scramble refers to that situation where you have a renewed interest for investment in Africa's riches, and as we know, Africa's riches is mainly based on its, its natural resources.
0: Now, how would you describe china's presence in africa today
3: it's very important to see that uh, china is not one single actor in africa chinese investments in africa are extremely diverse in the early 2000s uh, much of Chinese investments, especially in remote places in Africa, were done by Chinese businessmen and women that did not necessarily come from China, but they would—they might come from the Chinese diaspora. They might even come from other Asian countries, but be considered as Chinese in Africa. They might come from Cambodia, from Vietnam. What's also interesting is to see that the history of, of Chinese investment in Africa also relates to uh, the history of uh, the opening up of Chinese economy within China itself, so when there was this new push for investing in Africa in the 1990s. Uh, some provinces within China that had been marginalized so far also used this opportunity and the, um, the, the credit support that was given by the state bank to sort of raise their own economy within China, within their own provinces to solve some of the problems they had in terms of unemployment. So what I'm saying here is that there's, a, there's a, usually an image that China in Africa is like a huge army that is sort of conquering Africa before conquering the rest of the world uh, you know, under the leadership of it's, its general, which is the the president of the Communist Party. That's maybe one part of the story, of course, but the story is much more complex than that. And there's a lot of diversity in the Chinese presence and also in the way in which this Chinese presence was organized um, in, in the first place. But then, of course, China has become a very important Trading partner. It's also now growingly a very important partner to many African countries uh, in uh, in in security, including also uh, in in terms of of, um, of buying weapons. And the other part of the story that is also very important to tell is that African states, African countries, have not been sort of passive onlookers. They they're very much. Uh, Proactive actors in the in, in first drawing investors towards uh, towards Africa and also uh, finding their own room for manoeuvre in this new context where it is possible again in the 2000s to invest in for instance big infrastructure projects which had been put in a drawer somewhere during the years of the of the structural adjustment uh, uh, programs and which uh, were again possible thanks to uh, the av- availability of, of new funds through China, through Morocco, through Turkey, through Brazil, Indonesia, and and, and India and other investors. So it's crucially important to look not just at the diversity of those investors, but also to consider uh, the uh, the way in which African states and African leaders and African governments have been proactive in uh, this uh, relationship.
0: As the political, economical and social situations diverge strongly between some African states, can we still talk about Africa as a whole, or do we need to focus more on specific countries or sub-regions of the continent? What are your thoughts on that?
3: There's a general idea that Africa is is all the same, it's just one one big continent that nobody really understands, and on the contrary, as as you say, uh, there's a huge diversity in everything. It's hugely important to look at uh, what we as as researchers call the, the historicity of different African societies and to consider that the history of South Africa is completely different from the history of Ethiopia, of the Central African Republic, of Senegal, and each have their own history. On the other hand, one of the big challenges for African countries is African unity and is the ability of Africa uh, uh, to speak with one voice, uh, to make itself heard, to be more present in the international scene. And it's one of the things that is driving now the African Union to try and uh, uh, be more united. The, the new um, uh, free trade uh, though zone that was uh, that, that started last year is, is is a step in that direction, to bring down the barriers within Africa itself in order for Africa to be a uh, stronger partner in, in global economics and, and politics.
0: Now that's all we have for today's episode. Thank you to Dr. Paul Sadu for joining us along with Dr. Didier Plekard. Listen to us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Bye for now.